Nobody really asked at the time until 2013. But what I did notice was when I did start speaking about it, then things started to lift. Hello and welcome to another Manchester United podcast. It's a Phil House. I'm Helen Evans. David May. Sam Homewood. How are we both? Very good, thanks. Very good. Good. Yeah. Good to see you. Yes, good, thank you. Good. We're making a habit of this, aren't we, all being I together know, regularly? Nice. Well, it should be. It's, yeah. it's the dream team. It's the dream team back so together. Good week, Maisie? Uh, considering it's Tuesday. Uh, it's Monday. 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 Oh, there you go. There you go. Uh, considering it's Monday, it's the start of the week, so um, not really much has happened. And it's going to be a very rainy week, so it's, there won't be much golf. We are in uh, one of the centennial boxes at Old Trafford. The posh seats again. Overlooking the magnificent pitch. Posh there. but noisy. Well, you've got a noisy That's seat. You. Mine's fine. See the tours going on over there? I've never done the tour. You've done the tour? I've never done the tour. Yeah, I've done a couple before. Yeah. I actually was thinking today because I've got family over that I should send them on the tour, but they've gone to soft play instead. But I was thinking I might send the kids they've on gone the to tour. Soft play, haven't they, is it? Um, my three kids and my brother's two kids. Oh, right. So they've all gone there. I'm sure your kids around here would be absolute carnage. My kids are so well behaved, thank you. Obviously after Johnny. <laughs> anyway. Sam, have you had a good week? Yeah, it's been all right. Yeah, it's been fine, isn't it? It's uh, pleasant. The weather's changed. I just thought what the weather, this is really boring. I just want the weather to decide if it's going to be hot or if it's going to be cold because I'm very bad at thermoregulating. Let's get okay. to what we're here for, shall we? Thermoregulating. Yeah. <laughs> thermoregulating. Let's talk about Pat. Pat. What's he like, Maisie? You've been with him? Well, we've not really given him his full name, have we? Pat McGibbon. That'd be nice, Sam, if you so did that. Because people have clicked on this, so it would have been written down, so I just thought they knew who Pat was. Well, obviously they didn't. <laughs> Could be Pat Benatar. Who? There you go. <laughs> you will have a clue who lies. Love is a battlefield. Pat Jennings, you could have gone with. That might have been more familiar yeah. for me. Pat and Mick. Famous Pats. Let's just do the chat about yeah. famous Pats. There can't be many. Pat Sharp. Pat Sharp. Yeah. Postman Pat, I, what is this? Oh my word, I haven't Pat even Crowen. thought about him. Pat yeah. Oh, there you go. Patty you see, I never call him Pat, I always call him Paddy. This podcast, more than any other, is going to be about mental health. And that is because of what Pat is doing with his life now, um, with Train to Be Smart. But also, just a warning for anybody who, who doesn't want to listen to a conversation that involves this topic, we will be talking about suicide. Pat McGibbon. Yeah. Lovely lad. Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Helen, have you ever bumped into him? No. Wow. I know. Wow. That's... Crazy, isn't it? You you said you knew everybody. I know, I usually do. I usually know someone who knows someone or, I know, it's very strange. Disappointing. He slipped under my radar. Yeah. Well, he's here. Yeah. He's uh, one game for United, got sent off in it, gave away a penalty yeah. in a League Cup defeat. League Cup against York. Yeah. Do you remember that game, Mason? I remember it, yeah. Yeah. I can't actually remember Pat getting sent off. I remember the result, 3-1. I think it was 3-0. Um, 3-0, was it? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, even worse. But yeah, not probably the best way to start your United career. But um, hey, hope. One back. appearance. Do you know Sam, what? Sam, you would love that. one more than me. Yeah. I... One more than millions. Yeah. Billions. Precisely. Here he is. Here's Pat McGill. Pat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Right. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. You know, it's just great to be back. Um, it's great to have you on the podcast. I did ask did ask you before, have you seen or listened to any of our podcasts? And you said yes. So I was just wondering which ones that you had. So I, I have just sort of taken bits and bobs. So obviously, you know, with the likes of Keith Gillespie, the, the Northern Ireland lads in particular, I, I just keep an interest in. But um, I, I would take snippets out of it, but mainly the likes of Keith Gillespie, Roy Carl, I know Roy had did one as well. The thing that has shocked me most about all of this is that you two have never met until today. No, I know. It's really strange. No, as I say, I met, obviously, Johnny um, a, a few years back. Um, but no, we, we've never met before. Strange, because I know everybody. Yeah, I just, <laughs> honestly, when I when I heard we were doing this podcast, I thought, well, obviously, you played with Maisie and you're from Northern Ireland, so I will just do nothing. I thought, <laughs> Helen knows everybody in Northern Ireland. <laughs> she says she does. Yeah, turns out it's all alike. She says she does. except Pat. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast. You know how it works. I presume we tend to kind of go back to where life began for you, which was in Lurgan in Northern Ireland. Tell us about life growing up, firstly. 
Yeah, I mean, I always remember it, and I still have photos to prove it. You know, from from I was in nappies, I was I was kicking a ball about. You just loved sport, whatever sport was going. And and um, in primary school, you know, the, the sport was it was mainly Gaelic sport in primary school. Then went into secondary school, and they played loads of different things. So I loved cross country running, basketball, soccer, whatever whatever it was. So I think at under eleven, I first started playing my first structured game with the team Lurgan United. And went from 11 through to 15 playing for, for Learning United and then moved to Portadown who were in the RS League, played in the youth team. Actually, at 17 was considered too small. I couldn't even get in the youth team at Portadown, but then took a big growth spurt in between 17 and 18. And all of a sudden I was captain in the youth team, reserve team. I was in the, the first team squad and was also captain in Northern Ireland school, schools at that stage. And everything then took off in sort of 1992. Well, have it. <laughs> thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> Sam had uh, quite a few growth spurts, don't you, Sam? Yeah. <laughs> big, long-length body of yours. Do you know what? It's always been this way. Well, no, it hasn't. You didn't come out that long. No, but I, but I came out... Stretch Armstrong. I came out long. Yeah. And I've, I've maintained that length. <laughs> Just consistently. That was some birth. Yeah. Six foot four birth. <laughs> We know, obviously, families in Northern Ireland are very close. Uh, what what was your setup like? I had three sisters. I had a brother, Philip. Um, we we went through everything together. You know, I was speaking to Maisie beforehand. Just that, you know, I, Philip was a year older than me, and and we went through school obviously together. Went through you know playing for various teams together. So we had a we had a really nice, stable back uh, you know background. We lived. Out in the country, a little, a couple of miles from Lurgan, so it's right on the locks, uh, the, the the shores of Loch Nea. You know, we we grew up with you know with canoes, we went swimming in the loch. We had, we had an absolutely brilliant childhood, you know, and a very stable childhood. Um, but where, was, where are you in the back order? I'm the youngest. youngest. Yeah, I'm the youngest. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Spoiled ones. <laughs> yeah, but I don't feel young anymore. I'm, you know, I've just gone over the fifty mark, so I certainly don't feel young anymore. Now, I know this has changed since, but obviously in your formative years, you were a Liverpool fan. So how big was football in the household? Who were your heroes? Who were the players you looked at and thought, that's who I want to be? Yeah, so the the, the ones, I suppose, during that time, obviously it was a very successful time for Liverpool. So I suppose the likes of Alan Hansen, Kenny Dalglish, Ian Rush, those were the ones I was never going to be. What was your position? I played... Centre back, right back, but also played other possessions like midfield. I played, I remember playing for the school centre forward and scored a hat trick. Never played again <laughs> after that one. Um, so, you know, I, I, I tried different positions with Emmett, you know, so, um, and, and those would have been my idols. And, and funnily enough, whenever I, I went to Wigan Athletic, I became good friends with, with Paul Daglish, obviously Kenny, Kenny's son. So they managed to do a, a, a video. Kenny managed to do a video for for the charity that I founded as well. So it was great just to meet people like that too. Obviously, growing up, were your heroes? I'm going to go a little bit off tangent just because you have mentioned the charity and you did mention it before um, we came on air. Your charity is what you're wearing your bracelet for. That's right. Yeah. Uh huh. Can we have a little look at that? Yes. So the bracelet is it, the, the charity itself was trained to be smart. They promote positive mental health and build resilience through sport. So we have affiliated teams um, alongside doing outreach work. So I would go into schools a lot, both in primary schools, secondary schools. And it's about being proactive rather than reactive with your mental health. So within this, you know, the, the, the actual charity message is it's smart to talk, but not just it's good to talk. And the, the smart stands for sharing my anxieties relieves tension. And it's a very simple message. So when the yellow's up, you're feeling bright. The blue's up, you're feeling blue or down. But it's just, a, I suppose, a little visual because not everybody, you know, and, and it's it's not about strength to talk about their, their mental health. But sometimes people will feel the whole stigma and judgment surrounding speaking about your mental health. So this is a, a non-visual cue, you know, so, or sorry, non, non-verbal cue, sorry. And obviously this exists and hopefully you can elaborate and tell us more about the charity because not jumping ahead, but while we're here, eight months after you joined Manchester United as a teenager, Philip took his own life. That's right. Yeah. So that was, it was obviously a very difficult time. So as I said, we we played in the, the same teams together. We were very close. I moved over in 1992 and it was 
April 1993, then he passed away. I was speaking to, to Maisie earlier. You know, I was at the Cliff Training Ground, normal day in training on 13th of April, and came back to my digs. So Brenda Gosling was the, the landlady. And she told me to sit, uh, asked me to sit down and said she'd received a phone call to say that Philip had taken his own life through suicide. So that was obviously a very difficult stage, very difficult stage. And went back, you know, the wake, the funeral was all quite a blur. I, I remember the gaffer was great and that he said, look, take as much time as you need. Um, and, and I went back. But after a week and a half, maybe two weeks, it was nothing really for me. I'd, I'd worked really hard to make a career for myself. So I came back and, and what I was explaining to, to Maisie just earlier was probably park the bus because, you know, at five great years at, at Manchester United, okay, the, the York City ones always, always comes up. But generally over the five years, I had a great time at the club and, and it was the same at Wigan Athletic. There was a lot of, you know, it was a great fabric to the club. So at a very stable you know, 10 years, sir. So it was only really when I went back home that I started to, to struggle. You know, there was, and, and, and I suppose maybe you'll, you'll understand this, when, you, when you, you finish your playing career as well, it feels like it's almost like a death because, you know, you've worked so hard at it. And it, with me, it was a winding down because I played part-time football with Portadown and Glentorn. But I moved back, but I started to see the triggers so the family home obviously went to the grave, you know, it, the, those sort of things started to, to come back. And it was, you know, it was a very difficult time then when I moved back home, whereas there was a lot of stability within the club, both both at Manchester United and then at Wigan Athletic as well. What did you find difficult? In, in terms of moving back? Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's... I mean, it's also the, the end of your football career, because I, I couldn't handle it. Yeah. I suppose... You get you get known for what you were doing, you know, as a professional footballer, and then they'll they'll say, "Aye, there's that boy. They used to play professional football, or used to yeah. play football for United, or you know." And they don't. You're not identified as a person, you know, and that's I think at times which which is difficult. So, um, and I, you know, I, I probably was different to, to most, and I did a physio degree while I was still playing as at Wigan, and I had that to fall back on. But it was too clinical for me. It was, you know, sitting in a wee room doing a bit of ultrasound and that. It just wasn't me. And I was used to like the change room, the banter, all of the crack. And we, we know now yeah. that's something that's really, really important because it's, you sometimes get that whole thing of like it's a siege mentality. And like, you know, when you walk out in that pit, there are all your brothers and you're just, you're going out. And I missed that, you know, so I missed that. And, um, do you think, do you think, uh, all right, I know you've been at United <laughs> and you've been to, to Wigan, but other clubs. Do you think clubs do enough for the players coming to the end of the careers or the PFA or I think because it is just a your day finishes and then that's it. Yeah. Your career stops. Uh-huh. And you've got the rest of your life. You do, you know. And you're what, thirty five, say? Yeah. And 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 as well as that, you know, on a on a Saturday when you were playing, you've always got that goal, you've got that purpose. But then all of a sudden that stops. You're not playing a match on a Saturday. And, and there's just, you know, it's just wee things where you're starting then on a Friday night, you have a, a couple of beers and you, you maybe get your Chinese on a Friday night because no, no, yeah. you don't have anything there. And it just becomes a, a bit of a spiral. So I think definitely, you know, it's improving. Uh, but I still think there, there's, you know, improvements can be made yeah. Yeah, in terms of helping people who are coming the other side of the game with, you know, with their their struggles and their mental health and making sure that they've some sort of coping mechanisms and, and, and just somewhere to go, have have maybe a, a pathway to go down after playing football. And you know? obviously your your pathway at the moment is is smart to talk and I know uh, you've spoke Roy Keane's come in and spoken to people with you and so Alex Ferguson has did you create it with hoping that those kind of people would be involved was it I, I just wonder what your mindset was when you said this is what I'm going to do this is going to be my yeah my so, <clears throat> see, see funnily enough when I first started training to be smart it was a coaching program so it was set up and like you know Maisie like as much as you can have your physical traits so you know you might be quick or you might be an endurance runner like the likes of backs could run all day but you, you had all of those like Scolzi for example as I said like Scolzi you got him to do a 100-meter sprint. He'd probably wouldn't be one of the last ones. You got him to do a 12-minute run. He couldn't do it because he had quite bad asthma. Yeah. yeah. But you put him on a pitch and he just 
had such a picture. He was, you know, it was unbelievable to watch. So Train to Be Smart went from doing all these physical, smart type tests. To actually, uh, we we had started it with some young kids, but I was and myself and a friend of mine, Jared McMahon, who played with Northern Ireland as well. Jared was helping. We were actually we were doing these tests while it was with a ball, without a ball. But the parents were calling the kids over and they were going, no, you're doing it wrong. You're, and they're like, you know, how are they going to get the chance to, to actually improve if they're getting all these mixed messages? So that's where it turned around on its head in terms of the whole mental and emotional side of it. So there was a thought and there was, you know, a thought process behind it. It just turned on its head from, you know, the, the physical part of it to more the mental and emotional and that's where the charity arose from, you know. What When was the charity established? So it was established in 2013. So it's just over over 10 years now. Um, we have almost 200 uh, kids and affiliated teams from under seven right through. But as well as that, I, I go out and do, obviously, very important um, outreach work in terms of mental health and about being proactive rather than reactive within your mental health. And was that something that you'd always wanted to do, you know, since the time that Philip passed away? Was it always something on your mind that you want to work towards charity to help other people? Um, no, it, it it just evolved. You know, a lot of the things they did just just tend to evolve. Yes, I've I've always had a, a the you know fairly education's always been important to me. You know, so I've I've often thought about you know where I'm going to go beyond. But a bit like football, and, and we'll understand this, you know, we we didn't have a job. We just got paid for something we loved doing. And then all of a sudden, and it's the same with this, it evolved into just something I love doing. And as I said, Philip's my driver within it. So there's a purpose there. You know, sometimes it's that whole thing of if you're no game at the end of the week. So, you know, where's, where's the purpose to it? It's okay at training, but you need something. And it's pretty much with this. Philip's the driver in terms of, the mental health work and purpose. So, you know, I feel purposeful now in what I'm doing. And you're you're in the process now of getting a football pitch and getting the the mile long trail, is it? Yeah. So so we have already we partnered with a, a shared education primary school, Tully Yali, and we've been working with them since two thousand and seventeen. There's a there's a gravel pitch which is disused. The school can't even use it. Is this all based in Logan? It's all based yeah. in Oregon, Craigavon, yeah. Uh-huh. Um and the, the the kids can't even get the use of the the pits and the, the the playground during during the day because you know there was a lot of antisocial behaviour and there's a there's a area of land right beside it so we're going to develop it into a multi purpose pits alongside a health and well being trail and 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 sort of looking at the five steps the well being um so that the school can get the use out of it during the day. And we can get the use out of it with the affiliated teams, but also the community can come and use it as well. And I think that's really important to get the you know the buy-in from the community. And at the moment, you're up to yeah. So we we we're, at the minute we're up to around four hundred thousand terms of pledges and, and money that we, we've we've got. But it's it's going to take you know nine hundred thousand for the the pitch alone and then the, another 300,000 for the well-being trail so we just have to, to work towards it the planning process is in at the minute and hopefully that will move very quickly but it's, it's like anything you know you've you've all of these steps to take in terms of the planning process but it's being able to visualize it and I can visualize the end goal which is to actually for for our kids for the community uh, to get the benefit of that it would be absolutely insane not to say if people are listening and they want to support how would they go about it because we can put the information in the show notes yes. uh, below the podcast and stuff but yeah so i mean as i said we we have our our facebook page is, is trained to be smart we'll we'll be having just given link which we'll be able to put up i actually have a video as well of how it's going to look a visual of, of how it's going to look and it looks terrific so you, if you if you go on to either our website which is uh com or on our Facebook page, Train to Be Smart, you'll be able to, to get that, that link and be able to see the, the video of, of the vision of the, the health and wellbeing trail and the pitch. Well, there you go, Pat. You couldn't have done it any better. <laughs> okay, you are, yeah, it's out there in the, the Manchester United world, Matt, now, mate. Oh, brilliant. Well, brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Well done, Paul. So, I mean, I was just wondering, when you talk about Philip and 
that part of your life and you're speaking about mental health to people, is it difficult sometimes when you get an emotional reaction from them and you see people that are welling up or they're crying or maybe they find it hard to hear? Does that make it harder to share? Yeah, it, it, look, as I said, it's, it's probably depending on, on where my headspace is in terms of my own mental health. But, you know, I, I first spoke about Philip publicly in 2013, which was 20 years after, um, you know, Philip had, had taken his own life. So that was a long time of, of speaking or of not speaking about it. And why do you think it took you 20 years? It. I was that really asked, Maisie, yeah. if I'm being honest. I, I think Or was it your mindset or No, I don't think it was my mindset. I think what what happens is Was that either, a trigger? But even yeah, it could have been. It could have been. Somebody had somebody had asked me from the IFA would it would have speak about, about Philip and and I was going through a difficult time where again that transition between physiotherapy and what I'm doing now, I just didn't have that the passion for it, you know, with with, with the physio. So Somebody had asked me to, to do it, you know, and, and asked me, and like I think I'd maybe spoken to the Graham Jones banner was at, at Wigan at the time, and I know I'd shared it maybe there, but the vast majority of people didn't know, and sometimes even people who, you know, if you speak to them about it, some don't know what to say. I would say that that group within. You know, that, that group at Diggs, whenever that happened, I know I like Keith and, and Robbie Savage and that. Uh, Brenda organized a rave for, from them at the time. But when I came back, they didn't really speak about it, probably because they didn't know what to what say. To say. Oh, and it's, no. I don't blame them at all. You know, but I, I've often said this, you know, I there's two approaches, you know, you kind of a victim type approach or you can have a vector type approach and I don't blame anybody for any of the things that go on you know I I, I take ownership for it and but in that case it was just it, nobody really asked at the time until 2013 but what I did notice was when I did start speaking about it then things started to lift not overnight but over a period of years it started to lift and it was like you know what I'm, I'm sharing this with other people and it's it's lessening the burden a wee bit you know because mental health is it's complicated and everybody has it you know from the day and hour we be placed on this earth regardless of your set of beliefs there has been mental health here uh, so we're all you know we all have our own set of skills the way i dealt with it was i suppose learning and you know the more i learned about it the, the better so really i don't um that speaking about 2013 there was 20 years of hurt and I suppose from a death perspective I know that, that you can you know you can die from various things with you know people taking their life through suicide it's always the why is is yeah, the, yeah. the hardest one with it especially with somebody that you love that's been part of your family and you know you just didn't know you didn't know so that's why it's again spreading that message of it's so smart to, to talk about it to somebody that you trust and, and where, where do you that. find now where do you find yourself now in a good place yeah in a, yeah. In a great place you know myself and, and my wife we have a great family with three brilliant kids we are now in a, in a place where we're able to do the wee things you know for the, the weekend to go on holidays and that so we're in a much better place now you know because I talk not just about obviously Philip's death but also about the you know when I moved back home with six house moves you know, there are stressors, and when you have if it happens once, fair enough. But when it's happening six times, along with the, the finish of a, of a career that you love, all of those they all lead to where you feel messy as well. I'm sure, I'm sure you understand that. So there's there was a lot going on, but we're much more stable now. You Brilliant. know what I mean? So it's more stable. Great stuff. Do you wish people had asked you questions over that twenty year period? Because certainly people say all the time now, it's good to talk. I think the onus in that, from my perspective, has always been on, it's good to talk if you're the person who's suffering. But I guess it needs to be, if you're not the person who's suffering, but you think someone might be, or they might have had a loss, then then it's good to ask them. Or That's right. Because that's you, know, right. you don't want to. Your natural impulse is to, you don't want to upset anybody, right? So yeah. you don't want yeah. to. And, 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 you know, it can be it can be a very informal thing, like saying, well, how are you today, mate? You know, it can be something very informal. You don't need to be a recognised counsellor. 
You know, because I think sometimes with people suffering from, you know, fairly serious mental health challenges, there, you know, that would almost be a turn off. And like, you know, if they hear of more professional, they feel as if they're being judged. Whereas yeah, yeah, just yeah. a mate, just a mate, just asking a question like, well, how are you today, mate? You know, or noticing a wee thing like, well, they're not tend to, to go out with us very much. You know, that, that sort of thing as well. So uh, there's there's definitely a big sign. Yeah, there's a few signs in there. Yeah. So let's let's talk about your journey to Manchester United. How 1992, right? Yes, for 1992. How did it come about? I was a ported iron. Obviously, I was 18 year old. I was due to go to to Portfield, so I was playing with Northern Ireland schoolboys. I was captain. I captained them, and I was due to go over on trial to Portfield, and it fell through. That was in sort of around March. And then I played a reserve game. After the reserve game, the, the manager, Annie McFall, called me in and basically said, look, if somebody wants to speak to you, and it was Eddie Coulter. So Eddie was the chief scout at the time. Eddie brought me in. He said, look, we're bringing you over for a week. So we, I went over and, and oh, it was unbelievable. You know, I mean, the, the thing about it was I was just, uh, from from I was told until I went over, it was just pure excitement. But again, it was something that had worked towards and I just remember going into that morning and, you know, coming in. Norman had picked me up from the, the, the kit man had picked me up from the airport and down, sat in the reserve changing rooms. But there was, you know, Brian Robson, who was the England captain, you know, all of a sudden sat beside me. And it was like, this this isn't quite right. But once you get out on the pitch, then, you know, it's as simple. You just have to go and, and do what you can do, you know, so you can't be overawed by it. You just have to, to get on with it. And that so it was it was amazing even doing that. Went over for a week, played one reserve game here against Aston Villa, and, and it was marking uh, Dwight York and Dalian Atkinson. God rest him. So that was it was a hard baptism of fire, but I ended up I, d- I did quite well, and then they invited me over for three weeks. Um, uh, the, the best one was we went over for you know in the three week one played a, obviously a couple of preseason games. But I remember just before I signed, the gaffer got me out on the pitch at the cliff and Big Dion was signing at the same time. And he made me do 1v1s with Big Dion. And it was like, he kicked, kicked it into each other. And it was like, you know, that, that, and after that, the gaffer called me up and he says, look, we're going to, we're going to sign you. So he offered me a three year deal. So obviously seen enough, to, but, it, but it was almost like, you know, I'm going to put it out there just as a wee test as much as anything. But which he tended to do. <laughs> when you said you played for that first week and then those three weeks, who were your teammates that you were playing alongside in those games? Yeah, so a lot of the obviously the class of, class of ninety two. So you you know you had David, you had Gaz Navel, you had Phil Navel, all all of that group were all playing school. See, you know, I, I remember I played I played for a wee team in, in Monaghan called Oriel Celtic just as as a guest in a couple of games, and that was around March. Before I came, before I came across, but played against Liverpool and Robbie Fowler played in that game. And I remember we were beat, we were beat five nil. He was just, he was just too good. But I remember not long after moving over, I played in the A team at, at Manchester United, and I looked around. It was at, I was thinking it was at Melwood, and you had well, Casp obviously was playing. You had Ben Thorne, he was playing. You had David Backham was playing. You had Buddy was playing. You had Sav, Robbie Savage was playing. I looked around, you'd, you'd, you know, basically a first team. We beat Liverpool 2-0 that day and Fowler was playing and he did, he, you know, he, he didn't score. So it, it was amazing sort of the turnaround even in the space of just a few months. So that was the, that was the group that I played with in the first two or three years, Alan. So. Do you remember playing with that group thinking, wow, they're good? Yeah, obviously you were coming from Northern Ireland. Yes. they'd probably been training, you know, together for a long, long time. Yeah, since they were and, young and you could see the that. Difference, you could, yeah, you could see the closeness in it, but it was, yeah. I mean, you you played in, in games, and you just thought, like, I played quite a few eighteen games in the first season, along with the reserve team games, and you're just looking. You used to get the ball, and you just give it to Skullsy. Yeah, <laughs> just what Skullsy do, what Skullsy does, you know. So it was, it, it was amazing to, just to be on a pitch and see that level and and the step up and level, you know. So um, the preseason again, you know, like I remember Jim Ryan, Jim would have did a twelve minute run around Littleton Road. So normally you'd have got, 
if you if you were decent, you'd have got at least three laps of it done. Some got, and I was fairly good because, as I said, I played, I did cross country running. Doesn't look like it now, but I was a fairly slim cross country runner as well. And whenever I, I remember getting about three and a quarter done of, of London Road, so I think I was maybe third in the group. Shaker Simon Davis was second. But I remember Bax was first and Bax was way on round. He just from, you know, was really good in terms of endurance. And when he played, people don't realize the work rate that Bax had as well. You know, quality player, but people don't realize just how much the work rate was there as well. So it was, you know, the, the player with that group was traffic. And how was your adjustment to moving over to Manchester? Were you emotional about leaving home? Or was it just excitement? The, the, the initial excitement is there, but you know, after probably four or five months, the homesickness kicks in a wee bit because it, it is different. Because you know, the likes of Gaz, all of these lads, they can go home to their their family. With all years back, like we, I had to make my family within our digs. I was very fr- friendly. You know, the best mate was Kevin Pulkington, the, the goalkeeper, and Pulse was great. Um, so, so we we made our friends out there, but there's no doubt, you know, whenever that that first year, it's 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 difficult in in terms of settling in, and obviously with what happened to Philip, eight months in, made it even more difficult as well, you know. And I suppose looking back now, you lose a wee bit of confidence in what what goes on, but look, you have to you have to work through it. So you were with the same Diggs family the whole time, well, for those eight months, yeah, anyway. Well, <clears throat> they used to they used to call me Daddy Diggs because I was a year or two older than than most. Pelts was the same age as me, but it was mainly the apprentice. So you would have obviously Keith Gillespie, David Johnson, who's who's lad now is doing so well. So you had John over there, you had Richard Irvine, or Richard Irvin there. You had he's a pilot now. He is, yeah, yeah. yeah. I said that you yeah. So you, you, you'd Richard, I could go through them all. Gary Twynham, all great lads. You know, Keith, Keith was obviously there. Keith Gillespie, so all a great bunch. But after a year or so, then myself and Pulse just got ended up getting a getting a flat because um, just need their own space as much as anything. So your family were all at home. You were over here. Did they come and visit in the first few months? They did. Yeah, look, they were very good, and and they'd come over fairly regularly. Um, you know, Barnett, who who have been seen since secondary school and so obviously now now my wife Barnett would have come over fairly regularly and I, I, I mentioned this I've mentioned this before that Barnett would have come over so she was she was going through her teaching degree at the time um, but she also then she worked at, at the weekends and just in the leisure centre but whenever every four or five weeks she'd have come over maybe watched an A team game a reserve team game but Ted and Sandra Backham were really good with her like because whenever whenever Barnett would have came to the, the likes of well, it was giggling for a wee while, but any of the reserve games, then you she was coming over from from Northern Ireland and they had a sat with her, you know. So and thought they were very very genuine that way. So it was it, it was hard, but you know at least there were people that were prepared to to make us feel at home and make her feel at home as well. And so from your perspective, you're at Manchester United, you're playing in this extraordinary reserve side. What's the pathway for you to get to the first team? Who's in your way? And at this point, is your ambition, that's where I want to be? Or are you just trying to play as well as you can in the team that you're in? No, at, at, at that stage, you're just, you're just keeping the head down. You're working very hard. Now, we, we were quite lucky in that myself and Pelts in particular, you know, we, we lived in digs in that first year. Um, we always lived fairly close to the, the cliff. So we went in in the afternoon and maybe did a wee bit extra inside or whatever. So we had that that bit of time, but it was always about progression and trying to trying to, to break into the first team. Now, obviously, you know between Pally, Brucey, Maisie, Ronnie Johnson over that five year period, it was very difficult. You know, you, you knew you were playing against the best players or, or you know competing for that position, but it didn't stop me from from trying my very best within it. You know, and as I say, you know the the York City games always gives a match. <laughs> I was just going to mention but, that. But, but, but the, the <laughs> people don't realise, like you know that that particular year, it, and I think it was you got injured. Yeah. It, this was a classic. Sure, it's, fault, Maisie. Really, yeah. Uh, Maisie was that was the year that that Keegan, yeah. yeah, lost the plot. Remember, <laughs> I'd, I'd love it if we beat them. So. I was in the squad for that Newcastle game. I was on the bench. So at that stage, there was only three on the... I was going to say, it's only three subs. Yeah, so it's only three subs. So it was, yeah. It's much harder to get on the bench that's in the first right, place. Yeah. 
So there's only three, and I think Messi played in it, but I think he got injured. Was it you that got injured? Uh, Tommy Armstrong, yeah. yeah. So there was us, and I think Chalky was on the bench. I can't remember who the, the other one was, but we were uh, up and down the line. I was thinking, right, here's my chance to redeem myself after York, because it was a, a couple of uh, months before. Ended up, he stuck Chalky on midfield, and he put Keno center back. And Keno, the thing about Keno is like, you know, Brilliant centre back, absolutely brilliant centre back when he went in there. Keno ended up scoring. He ended up got man of the match in the game, and it was like, you know, the gaffer just made the right decision. I was still a rookie, you know, it was a huge game. I I get that now, but I remember after the game, was speaking to my dad, I phoned my dad, and I says like, what was the sense of me? I'm centre back, and I didn't even he didn't even put me on. He ended up, so he says, well, you know, if you're if you feel like that. Go and speak to the gaffer in the morning. <laughs> so I went in. Yeah, all right, I will. I, yeah. yeah, so I went in the following morning and I says, look, gaffer. I says, I know, you know, obviously the team won. Brilliant. I says, and I didn't say like Keno was mad at a match and scored a goal, but I says, like, I sat her back and I says, I'm trying to, to, to get in here. I says, you know, I'm very disappointed. And, he, you know, he went down the route of saying, look, it was a big game. It was obviously Keno's went in there just because he's more experienced. It was a big game. And, you know, I went, walked out and it was like, right, yeah, I understand. But I'm sure the gaffer, when I walked out that door, was going, who does he think he is? <laughs> this is Roy Keane that's just been there. <laughs> so, but, but you had to do it. Yeah, but that's you know, the arrogance you need. Yeah, yeah well, Absolutely. You, well, you need to have a level of yeah. self belief. You need to. Why have you on? It, it, like, it's understandable that you'd have that mindset because why be, why be that one sub option yeah, for the defence? Uh, yeah. And then not be picked anyway. Yeah, might as well have someone else there. Yeah, no, the gaffer, the gaffer was, was was great. Like you know, it's certain times. So obviously, the the York game, and you know, uh, yes, it's been shown now that it was outside the box. But that that my thought process at the time. Let's just clarify for people who are unaware. So you made your debut for United in a League <laughs> yes. Cup fixture uh-huh. at Old Trafford. Yeah. against York. That's right. Uh, and maybe you, you tell the story. How did it go? Yeah, so the week the week before we we had been at Roder Volgograd, and after that game, I was in the squad for it, and and Yaffer said, "Look, you're going to be playing next week." So the game itself was it was a poor enough game. In the first half, I think they scored from outside the box. Um, it was one 0 at half time, but we were still well in the game. But in the second half, then I was playing alongside Polly, and I had never played alongside Polly in a, in a game. And you know what it's like, as you know, you get partnerships, and sometimes they work straight away, and you get other ones where you have to to work at that. <laughs> so it ended up between myself and Polly, who tried to play offside. The, the lad Paul Barnes, the, he's run through. The flag didn't go up, so I thought to myself, "Well, what do I do here?" And I got to around the the, the penalty area, and I, I took him down. It wasn't so much a tackle as uh, GB hates, but <laughs> um, I took him out outside the the, the box. And it was shown afterwards that it was outside the box. So that my thought was, okay, I'll give away a free kick. Okay, chances are I'm going to get sent off, but at least I've given a free kick away. And that is because you've only split seconds and split moments to do that. And then I ended up, the, the linesman at the time, he ended up then waving and they give a, a penalty and I got sent off. You know, and it was later shown that obviously it was outside the box, but that didn't help me any. Um, and then after the game, you know, the, the gaffer gave us a, a bit of a rollicking, including myself. But I always remember the next day going in, and again, probably as much to take the pressure off me, he says, you know, thought about last night, I should have played Brucey instead of Polly because Brucey would talk a bit more than what Polly would. And yeah, and that, and that, look, and but it was again great management, you know, so that's that's why it's it's one of these things, you know, in, in football. You get sent off you have moments and you know at, at great moments at, at Wigan Athletic and, and it's just these these things happen so yeah, it's, it's how you actually it's how you react it if anything probably the final year was disappointing because I got badly injured in my final year but people love to bring up the York City one <laughs> um, Speaking of your relationship with Sir Alex I know it wasn't always maybe quite so smooth um, I've read a story in which uh, he walked past you on some stairs and you said hello. That's right. Yeah. So that was that was very early on in um, my career. So I, but you don't know these things. So I'd come straight out of school. Uh, uh, I was walking up into the cliff of the stairs of the cliff, and 
he was walking down. I think it was with parents of, of one of the young lads, and he was walking down. And as he's walking down, he just looked at me and says, all right, son. And I says, all right, Alex. And he looked at me, and he went, did you go to school with me? And I was like, I didn't know what he was talking about. He says, did you go to school with me? I said, no. He says, well, then don't call me Alex. Call me Gaffer. And I was like, okay. So that was less, lesson was learnt. <laughs> lesson was learnt. And after that, yeah, it was boss or Gaffer. I feel no. like we've had a similar story of someone saying something yeah. similar of calling him. I can't remember who it I don't was. Know if but... it was Ben Foster, but that's what I'm thinking of. Someone like that. Yeah, yeah someone very did a similar yeah. thing. So you're very, not the only one. No, that's that. good. That's good. <laughs> uh, what was your relationship with him like? The gaffer, you, you you didn't go in very often to his office, but if, if you had to, you know, he, he was always there. You know, I remember him, there were certain things that he said that sort of stood out. I remember going in one day and he says, the problem with you, McGivin, is uh, you need to get kicked before you see the real you. And that there's just wee things that you, you would have said and you'd have went, yeah, well, he actually knows my personality better than I know my own personality. And I think that's... That was a big part of it. So our relationship was always good. And, you know, as I say, with, with Train to Be Smart, he came over in, in 2017, seen all the kids, did a did a reception. We spoke, you know, speaking about mental health, we set up, a you know, various workshops within it. So he was absolutely terrific, you know, and he's, you know, he continues, obviously, to, to help when he can. Mm-hmm. Incredible. We were amazing. I was just talking about him this morning. What we're saying, he's just a genius. Yes. In every aspect of the word, like managing people, managing matches, like it's just mm-hmm. unbelievable and still doing it. Sorry, Maisie. No, 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 no. I was just going to say, did you have anything to do with the Porter, Porter Down game? Did you set that up? Yeah. So basically with, with Porter Down, uh, as part of my deal, um, United were, were due to play Porter Down at some stage during, during my time. So as there are 92 to 97, I think it was 96, 97 that we came over, played the game against Porter Down in a pre-season. And with like more or less a full full squad, and Okino scored. Uh, Eric was over. Um, there was a, more or less a full squad there. Um, so that was a nice. Because you came to United for a, was it hundred thousand? Yeah, yeah, I came for a hundred thousand. So it was it was just it was just with with add-ons. So I think it was twenty five initially went up to the hundred thousand when I played for Northern Ireland then. So, but as well as that, and you know, I'll always say it, the that particular game. The amount of support at, at, at what he called for Manchester United and Northern Ireland is massive. So the crowd that was there, uh, Port of Down, haven't seen it in a long while, you know, and it was, it was great. And, and all the all through pre-season, you know, I think we played the Umbro International Tournament. I don't count. Was it that was, was a farce. Yeah. Yeah. So I was involved with that. So that particular season, I was I was getting a chance within the squads and playing the pre-season games. And I thought, you know, if a wee chance here this year, um, unfortunately went out on loan to, I don't mean unfortunately as in the, the club but went out on loan to Swansea whose who's decision was that? the gaffers to, to get experience yeah. you know so um, but Jan Moby Jan was the manager ah, right, at the okay. time but played one game we, we actually we beat Doncaster 1-0 Darren Moore was marking Darren Moore from set pieces it was like oh my god <laughs> so I remember that game did well but the way it worked because Swansea was a distance I was training up here, training in Manchester then, was due to go down. Went in for a tackle that week with Ronnie Wallwork. It was just uh, the two of us just coming together. Mane went the other way and I was out for five and a half months then with two operations in Mane. And what year was this? So that was 96, 97. That was my final year before. So it was then once I got badly injured, then... Uh, once I, I recovered from it, I went out on loan to Wigan Athletic, and that's where everything started. To, you know, I really enjoyed my football, really enjoyed the club at Wigan Athletic. Then, before we get to your your the, the full details of your exit and why you decided to go, could you tell us a bit about your relationship with Eric Harrison? Yeah, you, you, see, the thing about it with with Eric, I was I came over as a as a pro, so you know I didn't go through the apprenticeship. I had finished BA levels, went and and. So I had Jim Ryan. Jim was the reserve team manager at the time. But I made a point, you know, as I say, every afternoon when I could of going in and training with the, the apprentice lads because first and foremost, it kept me out of a bit of mischief. And as well as that, it was I was getting extra practice. So you had, you know, that side of it. But Eric was like, he was old school, but he, he called a spade a spade. And I loved him for that. I always loved people who are, who are like that. You know, so he was a, he was a big influence, Eric. You know, and even there was a transition there. The, 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 
I signed for three years and then I wasn't sure what way things were going to go and before the club offered me another two-year deal. But Eric was trying his best and I think Ron Atkinson, Ron was at, at Coventry at the time and he had contacted different clubs and said, look, you know, well, if you don't get it, I'll make sure that I, that I help you with. So he's an absolutely, you know, massive influence as well, Eric. You know. And how big were those types of people in your life, like Eric Harrison, sorry, Sir Alex Ferguson, when Philip passed away? How important were those people to you? Because as you said, Huge. that was your family over here. Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah. I mean, between the, the Yaffer, Eric, you know, there's there's so many people, I suppose, that that you can be thankful for because you know, if if you look now, the whole thing surrounding mental health has moved on, education surrounding mental health has moved on. But just having people that were around and, and it felt like your family, um, it just helped you, you know, help keep that stable environment, which is really what I needed during that time, you know, because as I said, you know, I never I never played football and you but may as well understand this a bit. We never start out playing football for the fame and the fortune and the, you know it, it's you just you just want to go and enjoy it. You know, but you also there's certain clubs you'll go to, and there's certain teams you'll play with that you just feel more comfortable with. So at, at United, that was that whole stabilizing factor, and the, the gaffer was just you know my dad away from away from home. Lots of people say that about him. When it came to leaving United, obviously you'd done your loan spells, you'd had your injury, but it was your choice to leave, right? The Sarnax did offer you a deal. Yes, yeah. So I I went to the Wigan Athletic initially on loan, nineteen ninety six, ninety seven season. Ended up the first couple of games again. I was only I'd only coming back from from fairly serious injury. Um, so the first couple of games took a wee while to, to settle in, but after that things really took off. Scored the goal that helped them get promoted. You know, against Colchester, we won the league. So I was at a crossroads. The club had offered me two year two year deal, but. In all honesty, you know, I, I I went and sat with the gaffer and says, look, you know, where am I going to be sitting with them? He says, well, look, it's like anything I can't tell. There's still the chance. But obviously, I looked at the players that were around the club at the time. And as well as that, I'd really enjoyed my time at Wigan. And I just thought, I want to play first team football regularly, play competitive, you know, because reserve games. Once the, you get a taste yeah, of it. Once you get a taste of it. Um, you, did you play 10 games and help them get promoted yeah, as well? Yeah, so that was Scoring. why it was on loan. Yeah, so scored against Colchester. Um, on and that got you promoted? That got us promoted, that one. And then obviously we, we won the league then, so we beat Manfield, Mansfield on the final day and ended up winning the league. Yeah. You know, so we, but we so then you come back to United after your loan. Yeah, that's when you that's that's what what decided. How old were you? So I would have been 23 at the time. Yeah, so the likes of... Ronnie Janssen, Ronnie had come in, Ali Gunner had come in there that, that season, you know, and that was, um, so it was like, that's the, that transition. I think Paddy came in as well, didn't he? Uh, I remember. That year with, there would have been so with, Raymond would, and Poborski. That was after 96, one of the Euros. Yeah, so they, they came in that year, maybe before, or that year afterwards. But I think Paddy, whenever I was leaving the club, I think Paddy had come the in year that, after that year. Right, then. Okay. But, yeah, look, it was. Um, was um, it difficult leaving? Yeah, look, look, it was. It was difficult. I, I was still living in Manchester. You know, Wigan's not that far away, so I still had, 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 you know, still had was settled there. I eventually did move to Wigan, and and again, I just wanted to integrate into the actual community as much as anything else, and they were they were brilliant too. But it was it was a ranch. Obviously, you're you're leaving biggest club in the world. So for for me, but it was still about. Moving on to 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 make a career, especially in first team football, you know, and and some of the people, you know, some of the, the the lads within that team, like Roberto Martinez, like Robbie was a good mate of mine, Bonner, Graham Jones, who's now the Newcastle assistant manager, they were all good mates, and we had a really good team during that time. Michael O'Neill, Michael came in, oh, like I mean, Andrew Little, Andy was a he was a great player. We we had we had great times, and I think out of the five years we we made the playoffs, three of those. And just couldn't get over the line to get into the championship at that stage, you know. When you look back now, are you still glad you made that decision to turn that contract down? Because we've had other, we've spoken to other former United players who've been in a similar situation. And Danny Weber is the first one that comes to mind who was offered a deal, chose to go. And I mean, when we've spoken to him, he said he wouldn't, he probably wouldn't make that decision now. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I would change it. I don't think I would change it. I, I really, 
enjoyed uh, my time at Wigan Athletic. And as I said, you know, yes, it could have been different. And, you know, maybe one of the, the lads had got injured and all of a sudden I got yeah, in. And yeah. you, you, get, you get on a run. But I'm one of these. I, I don't have many regrets. I just to move on to the next thing. You know, that's the, the way my mind processes things. So, um, yes, I had a, a wonderful time, an absolutely brilliant time at, 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 you know, Manchester United. But, you know, when I'm you, you, you also ball, got your international call up as well. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. That, that's, that, that's immensely proud to play yeah, for the country. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. And, you know, I, I, I made. How did that come about? So I made, made my debut, and it was actually in a, in a tour in Canada. We played Chile, we played Canada within that. Um, then my first sort of competitive one in the World Cup qualifier was against Latvia. I was I was actually really disappointed in that particular game because I didn't play right back very often, but they ended up they put me in at right back. And we were one nil up at half time. I, I wasn't gonna be a Maroon right back. No. I wasn't gonna yes, be hit up and down. So I did the defensive end of things and I I thought it did quite well, but then I was taken off at half time, which I was disappointed with. And they, they went on they lost 2-1 to Latvia and both goals came down that, that side and you know th- 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 this is the thing about it sometimes you, you have good experiences you have not so good experiences but um, you know to, to play international football for, for Northern Ireland at the highest level you know nobody can take that away from me you know absolutely not amazing what was Pat like? <laughs> It was all right, a little whip a, whip a snapper, wasn't it? No, I think you should be asking, what was Maisie like? <laughs> what was he like? Maisie loved the banter and the change of room. You know, the, 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 this is the thing about it. I, they, they probably would say I was a quiet man, like, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said too much. But one thing, I, I took things in, so I was, the, I was the listener and the observer within it. But with Maisie, you know, it was a laugh a minute with Maisie. You know, school, schoolsy. He, he yeah. had a wicked sense of humour as well, like, you know, and it was... Um, the, that was that was the thing about the changing room. It was just it, 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 it's sacred. You don't you don't realize until you're in it. You know that it's just. But when you go out on there, there's no hiding place. Oh, either. absolutely. So, not. so it no. makes for that as well. You yeah. have to. You know, it's it's like I'm sure the thick skinned. You have to be able to deal with those things as well. We'd have had many. We'd have played together many games, whether it's in the reses or yeah. in training and stuff like that. But I just solid defender. You know. Took no prisoners. As back in those days, you could. Yes, you could actually. You, you could actually, you know, smash the centre forward, uh, and you'd probably take turns in it before one of you's got booked. But, <laughs> yeah. but no, he, he was he was that type of player, the type of player similar to what I was. Just give the ball to somebody. He's better, he's better than you in front of you. And, but that that's it as a defender. Give it to those players who can play. You know, don't be don't, don't try and be smart of it running out with the ball and stuff like that. Just give it to people who can play. But um, no, good, good, good defender, very, very solid. And the, the the thing about it is, you know, and and you you'd be the same as he like. We just enjoyed defending. You like getting your body in the way of the ball. Yeah. You just wanted to, you know, old school man. Yeah, just yeah. wanted to make sure you did, yeah. you didn't concede goals more than, than anything else. Everything for us no. would be a clean sheet. Keep a clean sheet. We've done yeah. our job. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned there earlier on that when you were at Wigan, you were doing a physio degree. Uh-huh. Was that something that you thought you would do for a long term after your footballing career? Yeah, I mean, it was. I was always when when just before I, I, I came over to, to Old Trafford. Obviously, I was going through my A levels, so I'd put that down as you know a second one. I always remember going to the careers officer and she asked me you know so what is it you want to do and I says I want to be a professional footballer she says no what do you really want to do and I was like no that's that's what I want to do but I had to then put down career choices so physio was the first one um so obviously as you're moving on in your career and you're getting to your towards your 30s you're thinking well what's going to happen outside of it so that's where I then did the the degree and it was a, the PFA actually put me through it they were they were brilliant um so the likes of Gary Stevens was on that. Gary was on it. There was um, mainly mainly ex players and and physios of clubs. But I I was proactive again with the bit of education and my career after it. The unfortunate thing is, I I play off my passion and and, and it just felt too clinical for me. But I have no regrets doing it, and I still do a little bit. Um, you know, sort of part time. But what it did do was whenever I went and did my, my health and well-being coaching and the diploma within it, it brought 
the physical side of things and then the amount of the emotional side. So it actually linked it all together. Yeah. And I thought that was that was brilliant. So it was never wasted. It was never wasted yeah. the physio degree. You know. As your football career finished, you mentioned earlier that you played part time and obviously did a bit of management. Yeah. What was that period like for you? It's um Going going back, I suppose to put it on you, you. The thing is, you're, you're playing part time, and and I was trying to to build up the physio business as well. So it then becomes it's not you don't give up the same time. So you're training on Tuesday, you're training on a Thursday, then a game on a Saturday. So that was difficult, especially the first year or two um, at Portadown, where there was a lot of transition within my life and. It was only then when I went to Glentorn and Roy Coyle was at Glentorn and they were they were very professional in what they did and I, I got a, a wee buzz from it again. Obviously, won the league with Glentorn in two thousand and five, but you know it, it was it was an amazing couple of weeks because we played Linfield, you know, sort of Linfield and Linfield Glentorn. As long as Glentorn finished above Linfield. It doesn't matter where they finish in the league, but that's just the type of relationship they have. And and that side of things, we ended up winning the league in the final day for Glentorn. And that was, you know, that was a big lift and really enjoyed that that season. Then going into the management, I did, you know, I did my, my coaching badges right through the, the pro license. Newry City had a, had a great time there, but unfortunately they didn't have the, the infrastructure and it was the same at Portadown. It was a difficult time because there was a 12-point deduction for things that had gone on previously. Because they had another three-point deduction. We weren't allowed to sign any professional players. We had to sign amateurs. And, you know, at, at both hands tied behind my back. So I moved out of that um, after a few months. Um, but, look, again, it was basically for my own good in terms of my mental health. I just didn't feel as if, because I was given an awful lot to train to be smart and I couldn't do do everything. And that's why I think I still made, made the right decision because I just love what I'm doing here. And just on the word here, obviously right now we're sat in one of the suites at Old Trafford. How do you feel when you look out on the pitch and you look at the stadium and you just remember your time? Yeah, I mean, every time, I try and get over a couple of times a season and, and every time I come over, you know, even the build-up to a game, you still get that excitement and the buzz you know it's so just just seeing obviously I know the, the, the stadium's empty now but you know every every time I come I just those memories start coming back like I as a young young pro was sat behind just where the, where the gaffer was in the middle part of that stand remembering being 1-0 down against Sheffield Wednesday and then all of a sudden Brucey coming up with those goals that all of a sudden win the league I was I just remember watching the ball glide in from from Brucey's head, and it just was the start of a, a terrific time at the club. So all those memories just just come back every time we come here. Pat, as uh, as we're coming now to the closing part of our podcast with you, what advice would you give to not just footballers but anybody out there who who is struggling at this you know this time? I know at a personal level, you know, it was only really when I started speaking about obviously the tragedy of Philip, but also my own mental health that had actually helped lift, you know, and it's that, that old thing surrounding um, problem shared is a, is a problem halved. And I think that's important to recognize. So as I say, we've got the, the, this message, it's smart to talk and it, re- it really is. But I also understand that within that space, you have to trust the people that you're speaking to and that there's a non-judgmental approach within it because not everybody under understands it. And that's why, I educated myself and went back and, and did it because, you know, there there are people in the whether it's counsellors, whether it's you know as I am a health and wellbeing coach, whether it's your GP, the, these things there are there are various things that you can do in terms of coping strategies and and helping, but th- that level of support in terms of being able to speak to a trusted individual, I think, is huge and and it opens up the conversation because the stigma surrounding mental health is lifting. And the more that we have that conversation, the better, the more that it's normalised. And I'm sure that's how you feel. You don't want any other family to go through what you guys went through as a family. And just every little person that you can speak to, as you say, a problem shared is a problem halved. And when you say you're a um, health and wellbeing coach, 
Does that mean you're going out speaking to people or what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so I, I work with various organisations, both in, in primary schools, secondary schools, youth clubs, and it, it's just to give little coping strategies. So the, the way I explain it, it's like, you know, it would be unsticking the stock. You know, and sometimes people, when they're when they're in a space where their own mental health suffering, they sometimes become stuck and they don't say the things that they, they need to say. So it, it's really doing that. And, and I've said it before. Can you give us an example on that? Yeah, so we we talked we talked earlier, yeah. you know, about the, the, with the kids, even the the chocolate meditation, you know. So I I go in and work with an organisation, Mindwise, in Northern Ireland, and in, in secondary schools, and we look at things like chocolate meditation. So it's actually being in the moment of eating and enjoying chocolate as opposed to just wolfing it down, you know. But it's just little fun things that I suppose for kids that they they can try, you know, and and some will work for some. Some mightn't work, but at least the, you, there's, there's little coping strategies that you can use. Just talk us through that chocolate thing now. Right, okay. Yeah. It's amazing he's to work on that. No, 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 because, <laughs> no, because when we just yes. clearly, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you explain so somebody who's out yes, there will okay. think, well, what's yeah. the chocolate mechanism? So in terms of the chocolate meditation, so normally, as I say, people would just scoff the, the chocolate yeah. down. But in this case, what, what you'll do is you will get a piece of chocolate, you will place it on the palm of your hand, you will smell the chocolate. You will actually feel the texture of the chocolate. You will break the chocolate and listen to it breaking. So you're using all the senses and then place it onto your tongue, close your eyes and take in all the sounds and the sensations within it. Now, you normally find when they first do it that, you know, especially if you're in the classroom, you know, the, the kids are laughing, laughing, yeah, yeah, yeah. laughing and giggling. But then you do it and you'll maybe do it with a different type of, of chocolate and the second time around every all the sensations heighten and you you start to, to notice your own heartbeat you you start to be really present within the room so i think it's a it's a really good uh, i suppose try for for kids in particular if you like their chocolate does that I don't make think you it... <laughs> eat less chocolate just asking for a friend <laughs> Well, this friend happens to be Helen. Okay. <laughs> well, well, probably um, it would take longer to, to eat, eat the, the chocolate. chocolate. <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, but it, it's it's worth trying. So you know, I mean, sometimes when we talk about meditation and deep breathing techniques, sometimes it's a little bit heavy. So it's trying it in a fun way. Yeah. I think is 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 worth doing. Brilliant. Um, just another thing that you did touch on was struggling after retirement and how difficult you find that. What advice would you give to players maybe who are listening? Don't have to be professional. You could be an amateur player. You know, everybody's probably going through the same situation. What advice would you have for that time period? Stay in the game because I know obviously Messi would play on the Legends games and things like that. And although the legs start to slow down, you know, you might not have the same speed or what, depending on what your attributes are. You know, now there's walking football. There's there's all of these various things. So I, I speak about, you know, the five steps to well-being. So one of them being being active, then, you know, staying connected. So staying connected with your, your teammates, take notice, learn new things. And obviously give. So when we talk about give, it's, it's an organization, a charity. Give up your time because there's a sense of well-being with doing that. You know, we, we sometimes... It becomes a, a sort of tech, tech, tech society. So I think just keeping, especially if you're used to team sports, to, to stay involved in, in some other capacity. So whether that's, you know, in management, whether that's just as a kit person, stay involved with that. And, and, and people who I suppose aren't involved in team sports, just reach out to people because, you know, that whole thing of staying connected, people who are suffering from mental health as you start to become isolated. And that just exaggerates their own, you know, mental health issues. So I think it's it's reaching out because there's there's light hearted right through to more professional support held than that. Beautiful. Yeah. Pat, it's been wonderful to listen to you. Uh, unfortunately that's us done. But thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. No, thanks for thanks very much for inviting me. Thank you. Hold well on, mate. Good luck with you. Uh, yeah. Well you made it. I'll keep yeah, I'll keep it going. Get us all one. Yes. Well done. <laughs> well done. And that was Pat McGibbon with some amazing advice. There's an awful lot to get through there. I just I just want to quickly go to how funny I find the story of him walking past Alex and being like, Alex, 
Oh, I really have to remember who else that was. Yeah. Was it? Who did you think well, it was? I, I don't know if it ben was Ben Foster. Foster. He's just a person that came into my mind. I have no idea. I don't, remember, I don't remember the conversation. Somebody yeah. saying it. Yeah. Now, I don't know whether that was about Pat, but I'm sure it was another player. No, I think no, it was another player. Yeah, oh, yeah. Thing. I think someone did tell a story about how someone else did that and they were watching on too, but I yeah. don't think it was Pat. But yeah, funny moment. Brilliant. Yeah, Imagine really that. You were Alex? laughing as soon as he said, and I said, Alex, <laughs> I could see you laughing before you even know how Sir Alex reacts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and as I said, some great advice in that podcast. And amazing, particularly about players who do retire. I know something yeah. that you've been very open about that you've struggled with. Well, not struggle. No, no, I, I, I did. did. I did. It's, it's, it's out there. I've said that. I did struggle. But um, I suppose when people retire from their jobs, what is that, 65, they go through the same process. But as a footballer, you're going through it at such a different time in your life. Well, you've still got another, well, I finished football at 34, so I don't but have another 50 years of life. But, well, you know, I suppose when you finish at 60, 70-ish, you know, you, you're close to that. That knockoff point, I suppose. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. What you'd say, but you are a lot closer to. Well, I think naturally, yeah, the people your age are all in the same position. Yeah, but as a footballer, you're the only only one in that position. Yeah, from your team, and you have obviously. got so much. And Pat Tussin, you know, you miss the dressing room. You miss so many things. You miss, and it's so good that, and I'm blessed that I'm actually at Manchester United, that I can still come back to Old Trafford, do what I'm doing now. And love doing what I'm doing now, and yeah, seeing your mates. That's us. <laughs> um, on a on a massive uh, emotional shift yes. in uh, conversation, I cannot imagine how hard it would be to be eighteen, nineteen, have moved somewhere new, trying to start a life in a different country, and eight months in to lose your brother mm. in any circumstances, let alone the way obviously, that Philip died. Yeah. I can't imagine how hard that would have been. And the fact that he was able to still play for Manchester United and still do all of that is extraordinary, I think. But not talk about it publicly for 20, 20 years. years. That shows you how much times have changed and how much people are much more comfortable talking mm. about things. I also think but a really sorry, nice message, it. sorry, Sam, that he, um, he said there was that people didn't know what to say to him. And, you know, just a simple message like him saying, how are you, mate? Yeah. How's your day? It's so important to people just to be able to say, how are you? It doesn't need to be anything deep and meaningful no. sometimes. No. You did that. You did messaged I? me recently. I did, Sam. I was very kind and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. No You're problem. Welcome. Do you have a problem there, Sam? <laughs> Pardon? Do you have a problem? Do I have a problem? <laughs> yeah. Why would, you, why would you message him and not me? I always message you, mate. No, no, but I know, but. Macy and I had a good wee right. twenty minute conversation this morning on the way oh. to work, didn't no, we? Just... Around, but... <laughs> that's, that's 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 incredibly dull. <laughs> oh, it wasn't. It was it was deep, but it was good. Right. We have to get off our chest. Okay. But it's good to talk. It's always good to always talk. Always good to good talk. Good to communicate yeah. with people. And I think Pat put that message across really well. And the little bracelets that he has yeah. as well. Yeah, they were great, weren't they? Great for children. Because yeah. sometimes children don't know how to express themselves. Oh, it's not, it's not so much children. Even even you know elderly people. It's just a, it's just a sign to say I'm not in a good position. Yeah, I'm not. And it's okay. brilliant. It's yeah. so so good, and it's so important that anybody out there who's who's struggling, just pick up the phone and speak to somebody. You know, it's it's so sad. Suicide. I don't know whether it is, is a prevention, but I'm sure there's there's some somebody out there who will listen to you. Just say what you've got to say. Get it off. Get it off your chest. It, it's so important. Well, hopefully Pat has helped anyone who, anyone who might have been in need of that yeah. in, in sharing that story with us today. And obviously you can go to his website and there are, there are loads of support systems in place 100%. for people that need to talk. Um, we are not those people though. So we'll stop talking so that if you need that help, you can find it. And everyone else, thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch, you can. We are United Podcast at Mayonet.co.uk. You can subscribe to the podcast and you know how to do all the basic subscribe, like, review stuff. We appreciate it. We'll five see you next stars. time. Yeah, five stars. Bye. See you later.